Hello, everyone, and welcome to United We Stand. I'm your host, Jim Feeney, and the show airs live every Wednesday at 11 a.m. Eastern on iHeartRadio and 107.9 FM in Vero Beach. You can also subscribe to it on Apple Podcast or at my website, www.jimfeeney.com. My goal is to provide 30 minutes of hopefully insightful commentary about the world around us and how we build a stronger, more sustainable America. This week, I'm coming to you from sunny but cold Cape Cod, Massachusetts, where I've been able to see firsthand the difference between state approaches to this coronavirus pandemic. Massachusetts and Florida, I can assure you, are very different. All I can say is thank God for federalism. In my book, Locally Grown, The Art of Sustainable Government, I talk about how our country's bottom-up design of 20,000 zip codes, 50 states, and one federal government brilliantly distributes power within that bottom-up infrastructure, starting with local government. And I also talk about the inherent dangers of too much centralized power. The book exposes the unsustainability of government debt and the awful bargain we make when we exchange freedom for security. I try to introduce my readers to the many locally grown principles like sustainability, accountability, the double bottom line, harnessing excess capacity, compassion, and engaged citizenship. I passionately believe that returning to our Federalist roots through locally grown principles is the path to a more sustainable, effective, and fairer government. Well, a topic this week uh, I think is something that is on everyone's mind. I watched in horror as protests and looting spread across America in the wake of the brutal police killing of a black man that was captured on video. The shocking scenes uh, have come atop this once-in-a-century pandemic and a depression-like economic slide. But let's stop pretending the past several days of violence and civil unrest has much to do with the killing of a black man by a white police officer in Minneapolis. Not that there aren't plenty of peaceful folks rightfully protesting the death of George Floyd. The officer responsible for killing him faces at least third-degree murder charges and will likely spend many years in jail. But it's clear now that there are thousands of organized activists coming from other states and inciting riots. They seek to tear down the existing political and social structures and replace it with something else, with their folks in charge. Meet the new boss, same as the old boss, the lyric from the famous Who song comes to mind. To be clear, the data doesn't support the protesters' claim that there is systemic racism in police departments. There are many studies that confirm black and Hispanic police officers are just as likely to kill a black or Hispanic suspect as white police officers. In fact, a 2017 study by Harvard economist Roland Fryer found no evidence of bias in police shootings and that racial disparities in police shootings primarily the result of racial disparities in criminal behavior. After studying many federal and state investigations of police departments across the country, Fryer found that when police were investigated after incidents of deadly force that had gone viral, meaning all over social media, all over the networks, the police activity declined and violent crime spiked. It happened in Ferguson, Missouri, after Michael Brown was shot by an officer. It happened in Chicago, after a cop gunned down Laquan McDonald. It occurred in Baltimore, after Freddie Gray died in police custody. And it's happening now with George Floyd. The police effectively pull back. They don't stop doing their jobs, but they become less proactive and curb their interactions with civilians. Is this what we want? One of the most important functions of the government is to protect citizens. This surely doesn't mean that police departments uh, shouldn't be investigated, but but these investigations have to be done with the police, not to the police. One alternative is to target individual officers for wrongdoing rather than putting the entire department under a cloud. Federal officials could also be a little more patient 
and letting local investigations run their course before Washington gets involved. Now, before you pigeonhole me as just another guy blinded by his white privilege to social injustice, hear me out. There are definitely inequities in our society that need to be addressed. In fact, our Declaration of Independence states, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they're endowed by the Creator with certain inalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. I think you all remember that part. Uh, But here's the important part that whatever any form of government becomes destructive of these ends, it is the right of the people to alter or abolish it and to institute new government, laying its foundation on such principles and organizing its powers in such form to them that shall seem most likely to affect their safety and happiness. So our founding document states clearly that citizens have a right to overthrow an oppressive government. But the question is, what level must the oppression be at to justify civil war? What percentage of citizens must feel oppressed so that it rises to the level of a violent insurrection? Well, maybe it's like the Supreme Court Justice Potter Stewart, who famously said in his concurring opinion in a 1964 case, uh, landmark case about regulating, regulating pornography, I know it when I see it. As clever and as funny as that was, it's a slippery standard that depends on the eye of the beholder. The Declaration of Independence also provides some clarity. As it states, prudence indeed will dictate that governments long established should not be changed for light and transient causes. In other words, you can't call for a revolution every time you feel disgruntled about the government. That's a recipe for constant chaos. Our constitutional republic has endured so long precisely because it is designed to allow healthy political competition with citizens able to change their leaders if they don't like the ones they have. So let me restate my question. What percentage of citizens must feel oppressed so that it rises to the level of violent insurrection? I think we can all agree that slavery rose to that level. But do the loud demands for vaguely defined social justice by violent insurrectionists like Antifa, do they rise to this level? They view income inequality as the defining grievance of our time. So let's take a quick moment to cut through the rhetoric and look at the data on income inequality. In his 2015 book, uh, The Economics of Inequality, French economist Thomas Piketty describes how persistent income inequality creates long-term damage to societies and ultimately becomes unsustainable. Now, while I agree with the premise, the research he presents contains some glaring defects that other economists have pointed out. Most importantly, Piketty only measures before-tax income and doesn't include any government benefits or redistribution to the lower levels of the economic ladder. According to an August 2018 paper by the U.S. Treasury and the Congressional Joint Committee on Taxation, income inequality in the United States using tax data to measure long-term trends, that's the title, that when these unaccounted forms of real incomes, federal benefits, are included, about 80% of Mr. Piketty's income disparity disappears. Indeed, Government entitlements and debt service consume two-thirds of our government budget, and it's the main driver of our fiscal unsustainability at all three government levels. This is what happens when scientists and other experts conduct research with an agenda in mind. This common phenomenon is called confirmation bias, and it can compromise scientific research that society depends on to make informed decisions. Okay, folks, uh, time to take a break and pay the bills, and we'll be back shortly with more. 
Welcome back to United We Stand. I'm your host, Jim Feeney. We are talking about the violent civil unrest that's happening around the country in reaction to the killing of an African-American man by a white police officer in Minneapolis. In our first segment, we were trying to make the case that the perceived income inequality is really the root cause of this sort of activity rather than the racial discrimination uh, that's claimed. But let me stipulate with that that there's some additional level of income inequality in this country that we should address with government policy. But I think we can all agree that we want policies that work, not ones that continue to spend taxpayer money that don't work. If the purpose of a government program is to reduce poverty, then it should do that. If it doesn't, policies should be modified or scrapped. The modern effort to cure poverty was born when Lyndon Johnson declared in his 1964 State of the Union address, this administration today here and now declares an unconditional war on poverty in America. Wonderful words that I agree with. However, according to a 2017 study by the Heritage Foundation, Our government has spent $22 trillion of taxpayer money fighting poverty since 1964. This spending, which, by the way, does not include Social Security or Medicare, is three times the cost of all military wars in the United States since the American Revolution. Think about that. And there's been precious little to show for it. The poverty rate in America was about 15% in 1965 and was still at 15% in 2014. It's only recently dropped due to improving economic conditions, according to the U.S. Census. For me, folks, that's a disturbing level of ineffectiveness. If policy doesn't change in the face of clear evidence that it doesn't work, there must be some other reason why the policy is in place. Unlike the business world where I spent my time, government policy often defies conventional logic. One wonders why politicians ignore the evidence that seems so plain to all of us. It follows that the policy, if it's still in place, in the face of evidence that suggests it's not effective, that must be serving some other goal that's different than what's being publicized. In most instances I'm familiar with, those goals are to increase the power of a small number of people. The the elites, the politicians, their corporate cronies, That's what policy is there for oftentimes. It's hard enough to convince people to change and harder still to implement change if you don't have the resources to do it. So uh, I think we can agree that a robust economy where most people uh, are benefiting makes the change process easier to accomplish than a really bad economy. But the current economic shock that we've experienced is unprecedented by several measures, uh, and it's going to be a significant headwind to change going forward. According to the Congressional Budget Office, a nonpartisan agency in the government, the U.S. economy could take nearly 10 years to fully recover from the coronavirus-related shutdowns. This sharp contraction that has thrown nearly 40 million Americans out of work will cause a loss of $7.9 trillion in gross domestic product relative to the CBO's January projection. GDP isn't expected to catch up to the previously forecasted level until the fourth quarter of 2029. That's almost 10 years from now, folks. The $3.3 trillion stimulus program enacted by Congress will provide an initial bounce of economic activity. It's doing some of that now by simply removing the lockdowns, but the, the economy will be running 
post-COVID at a level well below where we were prior to COVID pandemic. It's going to take a long time to heal. There are going to be scars as a result of such a painful shock to our economy. So, when does a nation reach critical mass, a point when citizens conclude that things are simply spinning out of control and something different is required? In moments of crisis, it's hard to tell when events will simply fade away and return to the status quo and when they'll produce lasting change in political and social structures. But it's with events like this, when crises kind of pile up from different directions, that Americans often choose a new path. But it becomes hard to tell what's temporary versus lasting change, even with the advantage of historical hindsight. When it comes to current events, distinguishing between temporary and lasting become even harder because uh, these events expand to fill the 24-7 news cycle, uh, which can dominate our thoughts for days, weeks, and months. My take is that we're seeing a situation that is going to be deep and lasting. Harder still is trying to predict the kind of change Americans might choose in the wake of these shocks. One thing is certain, there's a national election coming in five months, and it looks ever more as if it will be a referendum on how President Trump handles this moment. Will Americans conclude that they want a law and order businessman, which is how President Trump seems to be positioning himself now, to lead them out of the, these multiple crises? Or will citizens conclude that his response to the pandemic was ineffective and his ability to unite an angry, polarized country is lacking? Well, let's look back to a couple of recent periods in Amer American history that might provide some clarity. In 1968, the Vietnam War was going badly, fomenting nationwide student protests while race riots broke out around the country after the assassination of Reverend Martin Luther King. The multiple crises caused Lyndon Johnson to not run for re-election, and he was replaced by Richard Nixon, who ran on a law and order platform. Desperation again took hold in 1979 during Jimmy Carter's presidency. A terrible period of stagflation, which has combined inflation and economic stagnation, hence the compound word stagflation. I remember that when I was young very well. Uh, and it was hammering the economy. The oil crisis left people angry as they waited in long lines for gas. And while this was going on, Iranian students seized the American embassy in Tehran and ultimately held 52 American diplomats captive for more than a year. President Carter's famous address to the nation, where he lamented the nation's malaise, was perceived at the time as a condemnation of the American way of life. But by then, he had lost control of events, which paved the way for Ronald Reagan in the 1980 presidential election. We can go back further than that to our nation's founding to see a political demographic that frighteningly resembles our current situation. In his personal writings in 1815, John Adams estimated that one-third of colonists favored the revolution, one-third opposed it, and one-third were undecided. The current thought among historians from what I read is that about 20% of the colonists were loyalists or Tories, those who remained loyal to England and King George. Another 20% were the dedicated patriots for whom there was no alternative but independence. But often overlooked are the fence-sitters, the middle-grounders who made up the largest group at 60%. With so many Americans undecided, the war really became in many ways a battle for popular support. Public figures like Thomas Paine with his pamphlet Common Sense 
argued for independence and the creation of a democratic republic. They were instrumental to the cause. The British also understood the need to attract American popular support. Some colonists who were not persuaded by the the political struggle sided with the British for their personal gain or sheer loyalty to the crown. There were plenty of American farmers willing to sell their goods to the British. But as history shows, the Patriots won the War of Propaganda and persuaded many of the fence-sitters to join the cause. In both 1776, 1968, and 1979, Americans had a feeling of powerlessness as much as any ideological preference that drove them to change course. Maybe President Trump can establish a sense that he has the situation under control. Maybe former Vice President Joe Biden, his opponent, who has been barely barely visible through these crises, will find his voice. Maybe feelings of economic inequality and racial injustice are combining before our eyes to produce a, a radical turn to the left politically. Or maybe Americans will simply demand better performance from the whole political class. George Floyd, the black man pinned under a policeman's knee in Minneapolis, died at a moment of extreme dysfunction in American political life. Public dialogue is so poisonous and so polarized that we're not seeing the kind of bipartisanship on Capitol Hill that typically happens during a crisis. Hence that feeling that things are spiraling out of control, folks. Well, personally, I think the answer lies in demanding better performance from our entire political and government system. I wrote a book with what I consider to be a big idea that should appeal to honest brokers on both sides of the aisle. I think my big idea is way better than the Green New Deal, which implemented would fundamentally alter our nation in a way that would make the Constitution meaningless as it rearranged our economy further to the advantage of the ruling corporate and political elites. We must do better than this, folks. Well, that's my show for today. If you want to continue the conversation, please subscribe to my website at www.jimfeeney.com and you can receive my regular newsletter and comment on it with others. In the meantime, remember, united we stand, divided we fall, each one for the other, all for all.